Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack, uh, which it's firmly in my wheelhouse and probably, well, in Lockie's too, because of the years that we're talking about. Uh, and this is going to be fun. This is always fun talking about this subject, isn't it, Lockie? It is. I feel like I should, if I didn't have a break, broken leg, I'd be standing in the presence of royalty. I've got two renowned royal historians uh, <laughs> with me today. In fact, well, yeah, I mean, joining us, we've got Corinne Hall, historian, broadcaster, uh, specialises in the Romanovs. So it's Russian royalty um, is the specialisation. And it's there's quite a lot of R's here. There might be, even be some R-R-R's, yeah. uh, in fact, <laughs> with the uh, subject material. I'm not going to get Boney M stuck in anyone's head, hopefully. But the Romanovs and European monarchy, uh, Corinne's books include Little Mother of Russia and Once a Grand Duchess, Xenia, Sister of Nicholas II. And, uh, and she's here to talk to us uh, about her latest book, which is Rasputin's Killer and his Romanov Princess. Hello, Corinne. Hello. Uh, welcome. Welcome to History Hack. Um, how, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yes. Looking forward to this, actually. Good. Yeah, well, so am I. I mean, it is kind of in, in my wheelhouse. A well, I talk about 1917 a lot. And so uh, 1917 is, is part of the story here, isn't it? Um, we are going to go. Yes. Yeah, we're going to go a little bit further and a little bit further east for me we need to talk about a, a little bit of context maybe possibly uh, and so Russia then who was the richest man in Russia and how and he how did he and and someone called Irina come together well he was Prince Felix Yusupov and his mother Princess Zinaida inherited a fortune 40 estates fortune in artworks a fortune in jewels and they were said to be wealthier than the Romanovs but Felix was rather a disreputable character. He grew up undisciplined. He wasn't even born the heir. The heir was his older brother. And his older brother led him into a rather lousy lifestyle of dressing as a woman and going to nightclubs as dressed as a woman and all this sort of thing. So Felix got rather a bad reputation. But in 1908, his brother was killed in a duel over a woman. And this left Felix as the only Yusupov heir. So of course, he's under pressure to marry. But he's believed to be homosexual, so it wasn't really helpful. I think he actually he was bisexual because he had feelings for certain women. There's a couple of women that he mentions in letters and memoirs that he did feel for, but they weren't suitable for marrying. But in 1910, while he was studying at Oxford University, he went to visit an exiled Romanov in London. And he saw on the mantelpiece a picture of the Tsar's very beautiful niece, Princess Irina. 
Now, Princess Irina was the daughter of a cousin of the Tsar, Grand Duke Alexander Mikhailovich, and his wife, the Tsar's sister, Grand Duchess Xenia. So Irina was their only daughter, their elder child, born in 1895. She had six brothers. She had a very sheltered upbringing, unlike Felix, governesses and chaperoned and all that sort of thing. But Felix was very struck by her beauty. And he was encouraged really by his mother to make this connection with the Romanovs because she thought, hey, what, you know, we can't do better than that. The Yusupovs and the Romanovs, that would be a wonderful marriage. So she encouraged him at every turn. But um, Irina was drawn to him because she was very shy and she found she could talk to Felix the way she couldn't talk to other people. So a connection was formed, but it was frowned upon by a lot of people. As I said, Demi uh, Felix was believed to be homosexual. Grand Duke Dimitri wanted to marry Irina. He was a Tsar's cousin. And a lot of the imperial family would have favored that marriage including Irina's grandmother, the Dowager Empress. So really, Felix was almost a non-starter, but Irina wouldn't have anyone else. And when the engagement was announced, the imperial family was shocked. And Empress Alexandra said, I wouldn't let any of my daughters marry her, marry him. So anyway, they got their way. They were married in 1914, and they had one daughter, also called Irina, who was born in 1915 but she was always called Baby, never called Irina, to distinguish her from her mother. We need to bring in another character, don't we, obviously. And he is um, a Siberian peasant who smells bad of his own volition and doesn't look very great either, and yet turns out to be quite magnetic, doesn't he? So in 1905, that's, that's a fateful year, isn't it, where he comes into contact with the Russian royal family. How does he get from stinky Siberian peasant to people thinking that he's a lover of the Tsarina? Mm, this is an interesting one, isn't it? And basically, the, the first thing you have to know is that in 1904, after 10 years of marriage, Empress Alexandra gives birth to a son, the long-awaited heir, because daughters were no good, they couldn't inherit the throne. But Alexei had hemophilia. And at that time, there was little the doctors could do. And in fact, there was nothing they could do. And there was certainly no cure. And hemophilia is transmitted by the mother to only male children. So Alexandra felt guilty. And she turned to faith healers and holy men in the hope of finding a killer. And one of these holy men was Gregory Rasputin. As you said, he was a Siberian peasant. As a young man, he was a drunk and a lecher. But he also inquired, acquired a gift of prophecy and second sight. And in 1903, he visited St. Petersburg and he attracted a lot of attention amongst influential churchmen and he gained an entry into the salons of the nobility. And people actually believed that he was a holy man. And in 1905, one of the Grand Duchesses arranged for him to meet the Tsarina and the Tsar. And he became a regular visitor to the palace. And again and again, when Alexei had a hemophiliac crisis and he suffered a hemorrhage, Rasputin stopped the flow of blood by praying at his bedside. And the Tsarina became convinced that he was sent by God to save her son. This is the thing, isn't it? It's yes. He coincidentally is present for upturns in Alexei's health. So mm. you cannot deny that there are occasions, and he definitely, at the very least, like in terms of being a homeo homeopathic, he definitely makes the child feel calmer and better 
Uh, obviously, he's not magical, no. but she is very superstitious. Well, Russians in general are very superstitious and she's an adopted Russian, but she is very religious and very superstitious. And she actually she genuinely believes he has magic powers, doesn't she? She genuinely believes that and she wants to believe that, of course. She wants a cure for Alexei. And of course, she doesn't see the other side of him. She doesn't see him going to the nightclubs and behaving like a debauched peasant and getting drunk and all this sort of thing that he was yeah. doing in public. She only sees the holy side of him when he gets to the palace and he prays at the bedside. He then calms her down. Yeah. And her sense of calm, I think, is then transmitted to um, Alexei. I think it's something really only Russians can explain. Yeah. It's I mean, let's be honest. The chances that he was actually... Um, diddling the Russian empress are, they're zero, aren't they? Yes, that's right. Yeah, it's it's all very strange, but somehow it worked. And he calmed the empress. The empress is calm, is transmitted to the sun. The bleeding starts slowing. Alexis starts getting better. And it happened time and time again. But the thing is, in Alexandra's eyes, Rasputin could do no wrong. Yeah, so when, and that's the problem, yeah. isn't it? Because yeah. that, the, the bridge now to between what's going on inside the royal palaces, how how does that transmit to the Russian people and what does it do to the Romanovs and, and what do they think of Rasputin? Because that's key to your story, isn't it? Well, very few people knew about Alexis' illness for a start. It was a closely guarded secret. Even the Tsar's own sisters didn't find out what was wrong with him until 1912. So it was kept very much under wraps. So the people didn't know why this debauched peasant that they saw rollicking in nightclubs was at the palace. Alexandra couldn't understand why they sort of objected to a holy man coming. Well, this wasn't too bad until war broke out. And then Russia started suffering defeat after defeat. And in 1915, the Tsar decided to take command of the Russian army. So he left the front, leaving Alexandra in charge. And behind her was Rasputin. And as more and more ministers were dismissed and replaced by non-entities suggested by Rasputin, things went from bad to worse. And they, the people remembered Alexandra's German birth and they believed she was spying for them and that she was helped by Rasputin, who was also a German spy. So scandalous stories began to circulate because the people could believe the only reason that Rasputin was there was because he was Alexandra's lover. It's the old Ra Rasputin, as you mentioned earlier, Andrew. Actually, I used that line on a chapter subtitle in the book. It was too good to miss. But because Alexis Ildis was a closely guarded secret, nobody knew why Rasputin was there. And they believed these stories that he was Alexandra's lover. Something had to be done. And this was where Felix stepped in. So forgive me, I mean, if Felix is, I'm going to tangent a little bit, if, if Felix is I don't know, out of favour or his reputation is questionable, why does he feel the need to, uh, to involve himself quite so intensely? Well, like a lot of other people, they believed, as I said, that Rasputin and the Empress were spying for the Germans. They called them the German party. And this had to be stopped. The Empress wouldn't dismiss Rasputin. The Tsar wouldn't get rid of him because it would upset the Empress. He actually said rather uh, ten fits of rather, rather one Rasputin than ten fits of hysterics a day. He'd do anything to keep the Empress happy. And that involved keeping Rasputin. So they couldn't get rid of him any other way. 
So Felix and a few other people decided the only way to get rid of him was to kill him. So well, they, let's talk about let's talk about that then. Okay, let's talk about yes. the, the night itself. Yes. Now this is where it gets interesting. Felix got together a group of conspirators. There was Cesar's cousin, Grand Duke Dmitri, who I mentioned earlier, who wanted to marry Irina. There was a member of the Russian Duma called Vladimir Pirishkevich, an army officer called Sergei Sukotin, and Dr. Lazarev, an army doctor. Now, we only have the actual versions given by Felix and Pirishkevich, which roughly tally. And they say that Rasputin was lured to the Yusupov Palace. In the basement, he was offered poison cakes and poison wine. And after a while, the poison failed to work. Felix went upstairs, fetched a gun and shot Rasputin in the side, but he wasn't dead. He escaped into a courtyard where he was pursued by Pirishkevich and shot in the back. Note, I say in the back, this is important. His body was then dumped in the frozen river Neva, where it was found under the ice three days later. But this version doesn't stack up. We now know there was no forensic evidence of poison, no evidence of solids in his stomach, and no water in his lungs. And latest research reveals that Rasputin was killed by a final gunshot to his forehead, which security experts say is the mark of an assassin. Now, it's now widely believed that the British Secret Intelligence Service, the SIS, were involved in the murder. And the reason for that is that Britain was afraid that Rasputin was plotting to persuade the Tsar to make a separate peace with Germany. And if that happened, it would release thousands more German troops onto the Western Front. One of Felix's friends from Oxford days was a man called Oswald Rayner, who was a member of the British SIS based in Russia at the time. And I believe that the British government told Rayner to contact Felix. And there's a letter which was provided to me by the Yusupov Palace archives, where Rayner is writing to Felix to remind him of their former association, which was brief actually at Oxford, but brief enough to make contact. And according to a Rayner family member, Rayner was briefed in London by Mansfield Cumming, the chief of the SIS, who knew George V well. So basically, Rayner and John Scale, the senior British agent in Russia, had several meetings with Felix in the autumn of 1916 to plan the murder. And I found clues to Rayner's involvement in Rasputin's murder in letters he wrote to friends at Preston Manor in Brighton, letters to friends in Finland and archives in Russia. And several people also later wrote that Rasputin's assassin was an Englishman. And in fact, Rayner's driver, William Compton, told his family that Rasputin's assassin was an Englishman, a lawyer, who came from the same area of the country as himself. And birth records show that Compton and Rayner, who described himself as a barrister at law, were born just 10 miles apart. And Rayner's family confirmed he was in the Yusupov Palace that night. And Felix later said that apart from the five known members of the conspiracy, those culpable of this disappearance of Rasputin had to remain unknown, and he would never say more. Now, Rayner wasn't a professional assassin, and nothing can be proved, but many people now believe that he fired the fatal shot at point blank range into Rasputin's forehead. Wow. Um, a lot to take in, isn't it? <laughs> it is a lot to take in. Uh, I'd, and I would be sad to let go of the image of 
Yusupov repeatedly trying to kill this man and him going, ha ha, like Hollywood style when you think the baddie's dead in the horror film and then they suddenly spring up again and you think there's about three occasions of it. Uh, we also, don't know exactly what happened and that's the problem, you see. Yeah. So many people have investigated this. There were three bullet shots to Rasputin, one in each side and the final one in the forehead that would have killed him instantly. I, th I think it's pretty certain probably Felix fired the first one Probably the second one was fired by Perishkevich, but it's the third bullet hole to the forehead that's the decisive yeah. one. And so many... Episode so amateurs. Well, there's a retired police inspector who investigated this. One of the Secret Service experts, in fact, more, more than one have investigated it, and they've all come to the conclusion that the evidence in Felix's memoirs doesn't stack up. It was just a cover story to hide what really happened. We don't know what exactly happened. We probably never will know exactly what happened, but it is indisputable that he was killed by three bullets and that there was no poison, no poison cakes, no poison wine and all that sort of thing. And it, what Felix put in his memoirs was a cover story. And yet for decades, the story that we've just discussed, the, the whole, the cakes, yeah. the, the wine, the chasing him across the Petersburg, the, uh, oh my god yeah. he actually drowned in the neighborhood never he still didn't kill him none of that killed him that's yeah. what people believed for decades so what is the aftermath of this like for felix and arena well none of them were prosecuted for a start but <laughs> i didn't dare grandi dimitri had immunity as a member of the imperial family he had immunity from prosecution felix's marriage to arena gave him immunity as well because his wife was a member of the imperial family, the palace couldn't be searched. So that was the other thing. Pirishkevich, the only other man the police knew was present, they only knew about Felix and Pirishkevich in the palace, they didn't know about the others. He quickly returned to the front on his hospital train and died of typhus in 1920. The Tsar banished Grand Duke Dmitri to the Persian front and that saved his life because he eventually escaped to England. Felix was banished to his remote hunting estate of Rakitnoi in Kursk province, where he was joined by Irina and his parents. Sukhotin died in Paris in 1926, and Dr. Lazavert died as late as 1976. So basically, Irina and Felix lived for about two or three months in Rakitnoi, in, in sort of exile, not knowing how long this exile would last, until the Tsar abdicated, and the imperial government was overthrown. And that's when real calamity follows, isn't it? With, yeah. with the 1917 revolutions. Yes. So, so I mean, some of them end up all over the place. How, how does the Bolshevik revolution affect them? Well, the first thing, of course, is the February revolution. Felix was pardoned. He was able to return to the capital, which at that time was called Petrograd. And he stayed there for a little while, but he realised it was a little bit unsafe. So he went to the Crimea, to a place called Koriz, which was one of the Yusupov estates down there. And his parents joined him, Irina joined him, their child was there, and Irina's parents and her grandmother were down there at another estate nearby. So there are a whole lot of Romanovs down in the Crimea. But the provisional government began confiscating estates and private palaces and Felix decided to return to Petrograd to hide the family jewels and works of art in specially constructed hiding places in their Petrograd and Moscow houses. 
The feeling was when the revolution was over and things settled down, they could return, live as before, find the artworks and carry on. But that didn't happen. He managed to bring out of uh, Petrograd two Rembrandts cut from their frames and as much jewellery as he could safely carry. But by the time the Bolsheviks took power in October, the revolution had reached the Crimea and there were house searches and Irina's parents and her grandmother were placed under house arrest and things got quite serious. Irina and Felix weren't arrested. Irina's marriage to Felix counted as marriage to a commoner, believe it or not. So they weren't arrested. They were allowed to go free. But Soviet sailors were roaming the area. They were looting and plundering and murdering. But when they found that Felix had been the man who killed Rasputin, they let them go. They never bothered them anymore. So they were left alone, basically, by all these murderous, looting, rampaging Soviet sailors. Until in 1919, they were evacuated, along with Irina's grandmother, the Dowager Empress, her parents and other members of the family on board HMS Marlborough, which was sent by King George V. And Felix took with him the two Rembrandts and some of the most famous jewels in Europe that he'd managed to smuggle out of his palaces. But this, of course, was only a fraction of their former wealth. Yeah, it's a consistent story, isn't it? Impoverished Russian aristocrats across Europe after the... That's right. And Felix and Dmitri end up falling out, don't they? Why? Well... When Felix reached London in 1919, he began talking about the murder of Rasputin. But the conspirators had sworn an oath never to talk about it. And when Dmitri arrived in London in the early 1920s and heard about this, he got very upset. And he, he was angry because he'd never spoken about it to anyone. I mean, Dmitri's 1916 diary hasn't even survived. So there's nothing there that tells Dimitri's role in all this at all. He never spoke about it. He never wrote about it. And in 1927, he became even more angry because Felix published a book called Rasputin, His Malign Influence and His Assassination. And Dimitri accused him of breaking their oath of silence in order to make money, which of course was what he was doing actually. And they never spoke again. It was rather sad because in their youth, they had been very close. And some even said that they were lovers. They were so close. But they just had this massive falling out. When Dimitri married, Felix never even attended the wedding. So thinking about them and what they did afterwards then, I mean, I'm thinking of popular representations of, of Russian aristocrats in exile. I'm thinking of the Peaky Blinders depiction <laughs> uh, of almost like a, a semi-criminal lifestyle um, under the veil of, of you know, former grandeur. Um, what did they do? What did they get up to, uh, the Yusupovs, while they were in exile? Well, the first thing is, of course, they didn't expect the exile to last very long. They thought in a few months we'll be back on our estates, living like we did before, and everything will be fine. So they carried on spending money. Felix and Irina helped the Russian emigres wherever they could. There were a lot of people who didn't have even the wealth that they'd managed to bring out of Russia. There were people who'd run out of Russia with the clothes they stood up in. So they helped anyone they could. They moved to Paris, and in the 1920s, they opened a fashion house called Urfe which if you look at it, is the first two letters of their Christian names, IR for Irina and FE with the accent for Felix. And that did very well. They had a lot of American clients who flopped over to see the Tsar's niece model the gowns because Irina had the sort of androgynous figure 
that was fashionable in the 20s. So she acted as a model for all the gowns that they designed. And of course, the clients wanted to meet the man who killed Rasputin. So they did very well out of that for a while. They opened about three Russian restaurants in Paris as well, which did very well. So things were going all right. But in 1925, Felix lost the two Rembrandts that he brought out of Russia in a disputed case with an American dealer, which was heard in the US Supreme Court. It's very complicated, but basically Felix maintained that the paintings were mortgaged to this man that he, and he could get them back. And the man insisted that they were sold to him and Felix lost the case. So he lost the two Rembrandts. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. But while they, they went to America to do... to um... Uh, hear this court case. And while they were there, they managed to sell some jewels to Cartier. So they had some money from that. But then in the 1930s, the depression hit and they lost all the American clients at Urfay because they didn't have the money to come over and buy the gowns. They had to close all their businesses to bail everything out. And of course, they lost the money that they'd had from the sale of jewels to Cartier in America. So things started to go wrong. Then to top it all, the Bolsheviks um, started finding the hiding places in the Moscow and St. Petersburg palaces where Felix had hid all the jewels and the works of art. He got hidden rooms, false ceilings, violins, Stradivarius violins hidden in columns in these palaces, thousands and thousands and thousands of works of art, millions of pounds in jewels came tumbling out. Under the staircase of the Moscow house, they found seven trunks filled with jewellery, seven trunks. So a fortune in works of art and jewels was confiscated that Felix and Irina had hoped to retrieve, but now we're never going to get back. So then they had to start selling and pawning the jewels they brought out of Russia so that they could make ends meet. But the problem with that is that the market was now saturated with Russian jewels. Everybody was selling their jewellery, so they weren't getting as much as they'd hoped. For, for the jewels I'm really keen to know so obviously we've got all these pretenders haven't we and the most famous one of all is Anna Anderson yeah, um, who claims to be the Tsar's daughter Anastasia how are they linked to this 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 is a long drawn out saga Anna Anderson uh, claiming to be one of the lost grand duchesses uh, how do how do the Yusupovs find themselves embroiled in this well Anas the real Anastasia was Irina's cousin so Irina had played with the Tsar's daughters, Olga, Tatiana, Marie and Anastasia, 
when she was a child. And there's letters in the Russian archives between her and the Grand Duchesses, some of which I've got for the book, incidentally. So she was very close to them, especially to Olga and Tatiana, who were a similar age, but she knew Anastasia. So when in the 1920s, stories started circulating that Anastasia's escaped, you know, she's living in Germany, et cetera, et cetera. The imperial family who'd survived didn't believe it because they'd heard from the official investigation that all the Tsar's children were dead, along with the Tsar and the Tsarina. And Irina had had 17 members of her close family killed by the Bolsheviks. And it was three maternal uncles, two paternal uncles, five cousins, numerous other. And they're flinging them down mine shafts at one yes, point. Yes, that's right. They? they were, yes, yeah. exactly. Some were flown alive down a mine shaft. The Tsar and his family were shot and bayoneted, as we know it, at Katerinburg. So Irina was pretty traumatized by all this. She didn't want to know. But Felix decided to go and meet this woman, this Anna Anderson. So he went to Germany and he met her. But in a letter to a friend, he describes her as an adventurous, a sick hysteric and a frightful play actress. He didn't believe it. As I said, Irina never went to see her. She, she just found the whole thing all tra too traumatic. It kept recurring again and again all through their lives. And finally, in 1965, Felix actually testified against her in a tribunal at a Hamburg court. And he issued a long statement. They, they visited him because he was too ill by then to travel. And a commission investigated him and took a long statement saying that she wasn't Anastasia. He could find no similarity between her and the real Grand Duchess, et cetera, et cetera. And in 1970, her claim was finally rejected in the court. So after Felix and Irina had died, or after Felix had died, certainly, her claim was finally rejected, but it took that long to sort it out. But yeah. of course, the, the base for a lot of it was money, because so many people believed that the Tsar had money in a bank account. And if this Anna Anderson could get hold of the money, then they would all benefit from her doing so. But yeah, I mean, we're talking about the days before DNA, aren't we? I mean, it's not course, until 1998, yes. obviously, yes. that they finally managed to identify That's or begin right. to start identifying the yeah. Tsar um, and everybody that is... in that sort of in the woods. So I mean, a lot of it is down to, to play acting. I mean, she's not the only one that does this. She is the most famous. But I mean, there's a ta there's the Tatiana that's quite prolific at one. There was another Anastasia, yeah. several mm. Alexis. Yeah, there were several of them. Mm. Um, going around Europe, claiming to be one or the other of them. And I think, as I said, a, a lot of people think the basis of it was money, which wasn't actually there. So, uh, you know, it's just dragged on and on and on. But Irina, as I said, didn't want to know because the whole thing was so traumatic that these young girls she played with had been shot and bayoneted in a cellar in a Katerinburg. So, you know, she just didn't want to know about it. I mean, the real Anastasia, the, she she didn't die straight away, did she? There's the she was bayoneted. Yeah, that's right. that they, they finished her off with bayonets. Mm. And obviously oh, the theory isn't there that it's because they had the jewellery sewn into their corsets and things and it acted kind of as a bulletproof. Well, death. that's right. They, they couldn't get the, they, the guards were wondering why they couldn't shoot them. And the bullets were ricocheting off. And of course, when they stripped them afterwards, they found all these jewels in the corsets, which mm. were ricocheting the bullets 
away from the girls. So um, there's some stuff in the Royal Archives from one of the guys that was in the firing squad and stuff, and he was messed up by the whole thing. Mm, He absolutely went to pieces mentally for obvious reasons, um, having participated in it. But it's all very gruesome. Very gruesome, yeah. Very gruesome. And you can't wonder that Irina really didn't want to know, you know, about these young girls she played with meeting such a a gruesome death like that. But uh, I I just love that usually it's cats on Zoom. I love that Lockie's Terrapin is basically dancing in the background. Look at me, look at me. (laughs) That is pretty much his personality in a nutshell. (laughs) Yeah, he's all like, I want to be on Zoom too. And it's it's not just cats. Terrapin do it too. He's, He's really working it. Usually someone's cat crawling on the keyboard, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's all right. Mm. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get him out for a run around a little bit later and use some of that energy up, maybe. But he's, uh, <laughs> yeah, he powers around. Oh, there he is. I can see him now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's basically doing the running man in his tank, <laughs> looking for attention. It's fantastic. Um, just to bring it back to this, we can talk about Percy at length, but um, you've got this kind of weird duality, I guess, between some incredibly boring practical just lack of money stuff and yet amazing stories to to tell about the whole business and um i guess that thinking about ways for some of these um aristocrats to you know make themselves a living after the 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 financial the 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 you know, stock market crash and and you know the lack of just a, just the sheer lack of cash and you think telling that story would be part of it and even going off and to Hollywood and making making films about uh, some of these elements and 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 that did happen a little bit didn't it and um, were there's I mean we've talked about sort of legal problems for them but they 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 came to a head with them um, suing MGM didn't they at one point what was that about. Well, people started making films about Rasputin and Rasputin's death. And in 1932, around Christmas time, Metro-Golden-Mayer released a film called Rasputin and the Empress in New York. And it purported to tell the the story of Rasputin's murder. And it really starred three huge Hollywood stars, Ethel John and Lionel Barrymore. And they were huge names at the time. And there's a key scene in the film when Rasputin hypnotized and then violated the Tsar's beautiful niece, Princess Natasha in the film, whose fiance, Prince Paul Chebedaev, murdered Rasputin in his cellar in revenge. Now, although the picture bore little relation to the actual facts, MGM made the mistake of putting a preface on the screen at the beginning of the film. And what it said was, this concerns the destruction of an empire brought about by the mad ambition of one man. A few of the characters are still alive. The, met, the rest met death by violence. Now, everyone knew that Felix was married to the Tsar's niece and that he had killed Rasputin in the cellar. Irina was convinced that the violated character of Princess Natasha in the film was herself. Now, by this time, Felix and Irina had, had reached their lowest ebb financially. They'd pawned or sold most of their jewels and the bailiffs were a constant threat in their lives. The film was being shown all over the world, damaging Irina's reputation because she had never met Rasputin. Even as a child, her father had instructed her governess, don't let her meet Rasputin when she goes to play with the Grand Duchesses. So Irina sued MGM for libel in the London law courts and she won. It was a case that dragged on for a week or so. It transfixed society 
It was headline in all the newspapers. And she got what was said to be the largest libel judgment in England for 300 years. They never disclosed the exact amount, but it, it undoubtedly was millions. And Arida put it into a trust fund so that her daughter would eventually later benefit from the money. So there you have it. And that's why now, and when you see these historical films or not even historical ones sometimes, you see right at the end a little disclaimer that says, any relation to pe persons living or dead is entirely coincidental or words to that effect. And I, I call it the Yusupov disclaimer myself because you see it at the end of a lot of things these days. You watch when the film ends and you'll find it there. If there's any likelihood that it concerns anyone who could think it could be them. I think the people who make the crown are probably massively grateful for the ability to use that disclaimer, even though they're lying to <laughs> the chief when they. Yes, do. that's right. You mentioned failing health a little while ago. Talk to us about the, the end of their lives, Felix and Arena. Well, they kept a low profile after the MGM court case because, of course, the war broke out and Paris was occupied by the Germans. And really, Irina's Romanov name could have been used as propaganda. So they kept a very, very low profile. They later, after the war, became briefly part of the social circle of the Duke of Windsor, Irina's cousin, and his wife, Wallace Simpson. My favourite people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they sort of lived there, going into their Paris houses, sort of had the lifestyle that they left behind in Russia, you know, with all the servants and the gold. And the them too, hanging around with inappropriate thing. company, never. Yeah. <laughs> So, We're back on the, the loose lifestyle and uh, debauchery, are we? Yes, something like that, yeah. So Felix also tried turning his whole face to hand to faith healing. He didn't do it very well, I have to say. He wasn't very successful. He wrote his memoirs, Lost Splendor, which were published in 1952. And really, he, he, he regained ownership of a family chateau in Brittany as well. He fought through the courts for years for that after he found that the conditions of the donation of the property to the Department of Finisterre had been broken. And he fought through the courts and got ownership of the chateau back. So he was able to sell that. So money from the sale of the chateau, money from royalties for his memoirs, income from Irina's trust. They had a lifestyle really that most Russian emigres never had. They were, they were fairly comfortable, despite the fact they'd lost all the ma massive wealth that they had. He sued a couple of other production companies over films about Rasputin, but this time he lost. And he had a couple of strokes in the 1960s, and he died in 1967 in Paris after a stroke. And Irina died in 1970. She survived him for four years. And one of her cousins stepped into the breach and um, sort of kept her company, invited her to Beeritz, invited her to stay and this sort of thing. And she died early in 1970 in uh, Paris. And strangely enough, her death was to do with cats because she loved cats and she liked to feed the strays that came to the house. And one morning she opened the back door hearing this meowing and she was only in her negligee. And it was a cold February morning and she went out and fed the cat and she called cold. And the cold turned to pneumonia and she died. And it was to do with feeding the cats. That's a really sad end. <laughs> it is. But the, the strange thing is, there's supposed to be a curse on the Yusupovs laid by Rasputin. 
that the heir would always be a daughter. And I have to say that up until this time, as far as I'm aware, no sons have been born in that family since Felix in 1887. So um, people, people know me. Was the cat okay? I'm sure it was. She, she loved to feed the cats. She, kept, she had cats. All Someone over. else feed the cat after she died. This is my mm. fixation. Oh, is I expect so. Don't forget. She had a servant. She had a servant. Okay. I'm going to convince myself that the cat lived yeah. happily ever after. Yeah. I'm sure it did. Yeah. She, she fed all the stray cats. You know, she'd hear them meowing, go to the back door and go and feed the cat. She loved cats. I like her, even if she did hang out with Wallace Simpson. There's a, there's a lovely picture in the book of her with a cat, actually, which you'll like. <laughs> oh, I'm going to track that down. I, I, I think these, I mean, these are figures I don't know very much about, but they all seem very likable, actually. I mean, we've got, uh, we've got a, 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 a killer here, but quite a likable one, it seems. Yeah, he wasn't a bad man at all. He was, he was doing what he thought was a patriotic act. I mean, he thought killing Rasputin was a patriotic act. The Empress would have a nervous breakdown. The Tsar would send her to the Crimea or a convent or somewhere out of the way. And Russia would be ruled properly. They, did, they didn't expect the revolution to come like that and overturn everything. I mean, I think it was Oswald Rayner that wrote that Felix effectively fired the first shot in the revolution when he fired at Rasputin because Rasputin's death was a prelude to the revolution. But he wasn't a bad man. Rasputin wasn't a bad man either. He wasn't I mean, he was a chancer, and he, but he yeah. was good at it. Yeah, he, he seized his luck, didn't he? Let's face it. And he, you know, but he, he helped other people as well. So I wouldn't say he was a bad man. It was just a, a combination of circumstances, really. And I think... All of the assassins, especially Felix and Dimitri, really thought they were doing a patriotic act. That's really interesting. And, and, and kind of almost the breakdown of communication in trying to understand what Rasputin was doing there and, and the positive yeah. influence he was having. And this you know, is the in, whole within... problem, isn't it? It's all perceptions. Yeah. It's, it's, and also as well, I mean, the, the ultimate problem is that Nicholas is determined to be a, an autocrat in the extreme like his dad but he's terrible at it he's just the wrong man in the wrong place at the wrong time in history he'd have made a good constitutional monarch he would have been brilliant had he just had to do george the fifth's job because he yes. loves russia he was a passionate yes. patriot uh, yes. but he just i mean you can't be a fierce terrifying autocrat if you're too scared to sack anyone and you'll sit down and have dinner with them and then send them a note later telling them they're fired because you yeah, don't want confrontation that's right he didn't like confrontation Alexander was much sterner and, you know, saying, be the autocrat, you know, this sort of thing. But he couldn't do it. So um, don't even get me started on the patriarchy. Or I love this. Vander Wilcox's little girl refers to it as the putriarchy, uh, which <laughs> is magnificent. Um, and it's just the shaming of Alexandra that she's the bogeyman, isn't she, for Russians? She's yes, a woman who doesn't know her place. She is really. You know, as I said, people didn't understand what Rasputin was doing there because they didn't know Alexei was so ill. I mean, at the tercentenary of the dynasty in 1913, Alexei had to be carried by a Cossack bodyguard because he, he'd had a bad spell of hemophilia a few months before and he couldn't walk. Is that Nagin, is it, is it Naginsky, something like that? Or is that a ballerina? No, he was a dancer, Naginsky. Yeah, they, it, it sounds like that. I can't, it, can't remember. It was Nagorny and then- There was Nagorny the sailor, isn't he? Yeah, he was a yeah. sailor. Sailor and there was Derevenko, and they were the two 
who looked, sort of looked after Alexei and made sure that he didn't do too much and get into trouble. But then you've got Alexei saying, well, why can't I be like other boys? Why can't I have a bike? Why can't I play? Why well, can't I the do knee injury play? during the First World War is why, kid. Yeah, that's because right. You fell over and bumped your knee. And it's, I mean, he was in agony, wasn't he? And that's of one course. of the occasions where actually Rasputin's presence does tie in timeline-wise with an improvement in that's his right. health. Yeah, and there were several of these. So you can't blame Alexandra for believing that, you know, when Rasputin turns up, Alexis and prays, Alexis going to get better. But the people didn't know this. So I'm not even sure that Felix knew it, to be honest, because, as I said, the Tsar's sisters didn't know what was wrong until 1912. So Irene, that was Irina's mother. One of the sisters. Was it just praying and coincidence or did he actually have some kind of medical knowledge and and... I don't yeah. think so, no. It's, I, it's, I just think it's, like it's the equivalent of homeopathic treatment, isn't it? Yeah. It's all about praying, it's all about mental well-being, um, but Positive the child knowledge. believes he's better with Rasputin around, the emperor believes, believes the emperor yeah. will do anything for the empress, so even if he is a bit reticent about Rasputin, he's not going to make him go away, definitely. No, that's right. Mm -hmm. And it, it is this positive thinking attitude, really. Rasputin comes in, don't worry, the child won't die, he will get better. And then Alexandra relaxes, and then Alexei relaxes, and then the bleeding stops. And it happened so many times. I mean, there's rumours of herbal remedies. There's stories that Rasputin was having hypnosis lessons in 1912, but he'd been at the palace a long time before that, supposedly curing Alexei, so it can't be all down to that. So there's all sorts of explanations, but I just think it's a very Russian thing that Russians perhaps understand more than we do. I mean, I, it's not a sweeping statement to say Russians are superstitious. They're oh, in no. They certainly were then. Right, isn't there? Don't forget at that time, that was the time of Ouija boards and seances and all that sort of thing that was going on and faith healers. You know, I mean, Arthur Conan Doyle is into houses. spiritualism and automatic writing and all of that, isn't he? And then it's certainly not just Russians. No, that's right. It's... You know, it, it was a very superstitious sort of time, this pre-First World War time. So uh, it's all to do with that, really, I think. It's that attitude. Well, this is really fascinating. I've really enjoyed this, actually, just going over some stuff that, I, you know, I have a kind of inkling about and, and know some of the myth about, but actually kind of getting down into it and funny about some of these other characters and, and what happened to them. Where can, we, where can we find out more about this? The book is... The book is Rasputin's Killer and his Romanov Princess, published by Amberley on the 15th of March. It's available now to pre-order. You can find it on the publisher's website. You can find it on Amazon, of course. So it's available to pre-order and it'll be out on the 15th of March. So not too long to wait. Do you do the social media thing, Corinne? I'm on Twitter. Sounds good. What's your handle? It's at Corinne Hall. All right. Well, Thank you ever so much for coming on and chatting to us. Like I say, this has been really, really interesting and I've learned a lot. I'm going to find this book, actually. I, uh, I'm, I'm in trouble. I've got a pile of books there that I, I need to read, but actually I find this really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, for, the, for those who are still interested in the Terrapin, he's still giving it the running man in the background in a desperate plea <laughs> for attention. Uh, it's brilliant. He literally is going side to side in his tank. <laughs> Uh, hopefully in his head he's singing Boney M as well Corinne thank you so much thank you Alex I've got one of your books actually oh, is it George V yes yeah I thought it might be <laughs>
Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.